Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. When the British defeated the French and their allies in the Seven Years' War, they acquired vast new territories that dramatically expanded British America. Britain's North American empire grew to include New Brunswick in Canada, Florida on the southern mainland, and Caribbean islands like Dominica, among many other places. How would the British meld these spaces? Spaces that were religiously and ethnically diverse, characterized by both free and enslaved labor, and fraught with tension between indigenous peoples and white settlers into a coherent empire. Well, they first had to map them. In the decade before the American Revolution, the British government embarked on a monumental effort to create new, high-resolution maps that would help it forge a new imperial landscape. On today's episode, Dr. Max Edelson joins us to explain how a cadre of British military engineers, surveyors, and diplomats produced maps that sought to realize a vision of empire that never came to be. Dr. Edelson is a historian of British America at the University of Virginia and the author of the recent book, The New Map of Empire, How Britain Imagined America Before Independence. Now, during this episode, Dr. Edelson and I discuss a number of maps and we'll post links to the digitized images of them where available on our webpage for this show. We also discuss the Washington Library's recent acquisition of the Richard H. Brown Revolutionary War Map Collection, which we think will help scholars and teachers transform our understanding of cartography and revolutionary America. I'll post a link to this collection as well. And finally, if you are in the area or plan to be in the next six months, we recently installed a temporary exhibition featuring some of the Brown Collection maps in Mount Vernon's Education Center. This exhibit was co-curated by me, Elizabeth Mullen, Michelle Payne, and Adam Irby. It tells the story of the Revolutionary War's opening moments, from the American victory at the Siege of Boston in 1775 and 1776 to the Continental Army's catastrophic defeats in New York in the summer and fall of 1776. I hope you come and see it. All right, just a quick shout out to our listeners and subscribers. Thanks so much to those of you who have emailed me recently. I really appreciate hearing from you. And now, let's create a new map of empire with Max Edelson. All right, Dr. Edelson. Uh, thanks very much for sitting for the podcast today. I was wondering if we we might talk about maps and see how many map puns we can accomplish <laughs> over the course of the next, I don't know, 30 minutes or so. But um, your most recent book, uh, deals with maps, and it deals with the problem of maps and empire in the years before the American Revolution. And, and I think you know we'll talk about the new map of empire uh, more specifically here in a moment. But um, where did your interest in maps come from? Where did that originate? Thanks for having me, Jim. I'm glad to do it. Uh, so I my first book was on colonial South Carolina. I studied the emergence of South Carolina's plantation economy and culture and society. And maps were really valuable sources for that uh, research. So I used state maps that were mm-hmm. commissioned by courts to, let's say, divide plantations. Um, and they would show every field and where the buildings were. They were really valuable sources for understanding plantation life. So I, I, I used them as sources for that study. There were maps that were published uh, that showed where plantations were arrayed around the natural features of this landscape. So that allowed me to envision plantation neighborhoods at a different scale. And of course, there were maps of Charleston Mm -hmm. uh, made that helped me see how the town and countryside were integrated. So I kind of used these maps as sources. But what I realized when I finished the book was that I didn't really have a sense of those sources who Mm -hmm. made these Mm -hmm. maps, how they made them, you know, 
how many where they came from, what were other maps like that. And as a historian, that made me feel, I guess, a little uncomfortable that yeah. there was a, I was just scratching the surface of something that was deeper that mm-hmm. I wanted to know. And I took that qu- set of questions about maps and how they were made in the early modern Atlantic world to the Library of Congress when I had a sabbatical fellowship mm-hmm. there. I worked at the Kluge Center, and I was the Kislak Fellow of American Studies in 2007-2008. And the Library of Congress is magnificent yeah. for the study of maps. Not only do they have the largest map collection in the world, bar none, but they have an extremely rich collection of American maps in the era of the colonial period and the American Revolution and beyond. They especially have a good collection of manuscript maps. So the maps that are made in the field with paper and pencil and ink mm-hmm. before they're engraved and published for wider consumption. So I began investigating this body of maps um, during this fellowship and tried to you know, ask questions about well, why why this map of Nova Scotia, mm-hmm. not more maps of Virginia. Why? Who is producing these maps, and why? And one of the benefits of working at the library is that uh, in the Madison Building, the geography and maps reading room is in the basement, and the manuscripts room is on the first floor. So after uh, looking at maps for several hours until I could look at no more, <laughs> I'd go upstairs to the manuscripts room and I'd find the correspondence, some of which was with the map makers uh, and the mm-hmm. surveyors. That gave me a a clear sense of what Great Britain was after Mm -hmm. as it tried to map North America and the West Indies between the Seven Years' War Mm -hmm. and the American Revolution. And so the study really grew out of that research experience Mm -hmm. in the archives, looking at maps and trying to figure out what they meant. So the question came out of looking at the maps themselves. You didn't didn't walk in thinking about, you know, this bigger picture about, uh, or this bigger question about how the British are trying to envision their empire in the post-Seven Years' War period. Is, Is it fair to say then that you walked in to those maps started looking at them, started looking at the correspondence, and then the ideas started to emerge from there. That's right. So the the one map maker I knew a little bit about was William de Brom. He mm. was appointed the uh, the the surveyor general for the Southern District of the General Survey of North America. This was a big surveying effort that the Board of Trade, the the Commissioner of Trade and Plantations, really the agency in Great mm-hmm. Britain for overseeing the the global empire. Uh, he reported to them, and I knew some of the maps he made. I knew some of his story because he'd been involved in in mapping South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I kind of began with him. Uh, tried to find all the maps that he did. And and then I asked one of the um, the curators there, well, if there's a surveyor general for the Southern District, surely there must be a surveyor general for the Northern sure, District, yeah. who I really didn't know much about. And it's a man named Samuel Holland, mm-hmm. also someone with a military background who gained his training in the, in the wars before, um, who was appointed to survey uh, the Northeast and especially uh, places like St. John, uh, the island of St. John, which is now Prince Edward Island, mm-hmm. coasts of Nova Scotia and Maine. And so I began piecing together uh, this big survey project that was centered in Whitehall, centered at the Board of Trade, which involved Army and Admiralty mm-hmm. and Indian Affairs and uh, general surveyors and provincial surveyors. And what I came to realize as I was exploring this map collection is that this was no, uh, this was a coordinated effort to, uh, on the part of the British mm-hmm. state, to try to really take control of American spaces in this era right after the Seven Years' War. There was a great fear in Britain that um, America was growing too big, too Mm -hmm. populous, and would eventually just break off into its own um, uh, independent governments. And they really wanted to use the post-war moment as a way to solidify their control. And making maps, especially understanding these new territories Mm -hmm. that Britain had won at the negotiations that concluded the Seven Years' War in 1763, this was the goal of these maps, to really have the knowledge to Mm -hmm. to colonize these places, to defend them, and to make sure that the American colonies stayed under Britain's uh, supervision. So what are some concrete examples of the ways that maps help, help to do 
uh, this kind of work that the British are interested in in this period? Well, uh, one of the chapters of my book is about the colony of East Florida, which is really peninsular uh-huh. Florida. West Florida, the Gulf Coast side, was its own colony. And the William de Brom, the surveyor I mentioned, the surveyor general for the Southern District, his job was to go into East Florida, which the Brit- British knew almost nothing about. They had some French and Spanish mm-hmm. maps. They didn't even know where the rivers were, what they were called. And of course, what they imagined was a new plantation landscape that would be productive mm-hmm. and valuable, um, that would grow up along the banks of these rivers. Um, but first they had to discover where the rivers were. So de Brahms' big project in East Florida was to locate river inlets, just to figure out where they uh, met with the sea so that they could promote these places as places mm-hmm. where planters uh, could come and uh, bring their slaves and purchase new slaves and grow indigo and rice and other commodities that they might sell so that East Florida can not only be defended against the Spanish coming back, but could add revenue mm-hmm. to, the, to the state and to, to grow this empire. So each place that was mapped in the post-war empire had a story like this. Um, the other uh, area that was mapped comprehensively was the so-called proclamation line. Oh, um, I was going to ask about that, yeah. Yeah, so, so this was an initiative um, not to colonize space, but to keep colonists mm-hmm. out of it. Uh, One of the things the British state realized after going hundreds of millions of pounds into debt to win the Seven Years' War was that there's no way they could mount an effective military defense of a vast North American Mm -hmm. frontier. For Native Americans who were very um, suspicious of having the French gone and only the British there, um, they imagined that settlers, the floodgates would open and the settlers would pour into these new uh, river valleys and uh, push Indians off the land. The British wanted this to use this moment to reassure them that that wouldn't be happening. And so not only did they proclaim the proclamation, the king did in, in 1763, uh, which basically barred new, new settlement and contested interior lands, but they were committed to drawing new boundaries mm-hmm. in negotiation with each of the major native nations of the interior um, until by 1768 they had a comprehensive negotiated boundary line that went across the length and breadth of mm-hmm. British North America. America. Um, they couldn't enforce it. They couldn't sure. keep settlers from uh, going across it. But they did strike fear in the hearts of wealthy land speculators, mm-hmm. uh, including George Washington. Oh, yeah. Uh, because Washington and others knew that this was a really singular opportunity to amass vast landed wealth mm-hmm. uh, and that new settlers would come in and make this land valuable. And whoever owned the most of it would be fantastically rich. And yeah. of course, people like Washington also thought they were doing a great service for the empire sure. uh, to promote that development. So colonists were, and, and especially speculators, were really stung by this. They were surprised by it. Um, and they, um, they, they, they wanted this uh, initiative to succeed only in the short term so that they could mm-hmm. eventually uh, take advantage of these lands. But they were also concerned that if the British held to their promise to Native Americans to uh, bar settlers from going further into the interior, um, even if they illegally squatted on these lands, mm-hmm. they couldn't mortgage them, they couldn't uh, sell them legally in court. Yeah. They'd be off the books in a way that made them deeply uncomfortable, and they would be at odds with their governments mm-hmm. and with their imperial government. That made them uncomfortable. They were loyal subjects of the king. So this really sets up, not only is this an interesting story about cartography, it sets up uh, the the tensions that lead to the American yeah. Revolution itself. Well, and what role do indigenous people play? Because uh, you, you alluded to the fact that they're, the British are in negotiations with native peoples in these spaces, particularly with the proclamation line. They have to sort of figure out What's uh, what's going to be British territory? What's going to be these Indian reserves? How did you know? How do Native peoples play into this story? 
So this is an interesting story, and I think um, we'll never know for sure what Native leaders thought during these negotiations. I suspect that they were pretty cynical by this point mm -hmm. about what any British promise meant to them. But yet, what options did they have but mm -hmm. to try to negotiate the best deals they could? A really interesting class of leaders emerged who uh, thought there was great promise in negotiating with the British, um, and they did so to try to have a say in how this new post-war uh, post world would shape up. Um, and they, some of them did have a great deal of influence. So I think what I learned by, by uh, studying this for the book, um, this is the subject of chapter four of the book, is mm -hmm. uh, surveying this boundary line, was that we can't just lump all Native Americans together as one class, that uh, there were Native groups that benefited from this arrangement and some that, that suffered. Mm -hmm. So uh, as, as many of your listeners will know, one of the, the key treaties that really tried to push this boundary line further into the interior was the Treaty of Fort Stanwix in ah. 1768. Mm -hmm. One of the things I try to do in the book is to show how this made a lot of sense, both to the Cherokee Nation and the Haudenosaunee, the Iroquois mm -hmm. Confederacy. Um, but of course, they the sacrifice were all the Indians that lived along the Ohio River. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the purpose of this was to protect the Iroquois and the Cherokee, but to make settlement more likely to advance into the Ohio River Valley. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, each, what I've tried to do in the chapter is to show how each major native group, especially the Creeks, the Cherokees, and the Iroquois, had an agenda here, and we can look at these boundary mm -hmm. surveys to kind of to see that agenda. The other thing that was interesting about these surveys was that the British knew that Native Americans were rightfully suspicious of land deals. Mm -hmm. um, they'd been They'd been um, duped before um, with uh, with false promises about encroachment. So the British wanted to convince Native Americans that they meant business this time and that these dealings would be kind of fair and transparent. So what they did is not only did they have great congresses, they called them, diplomatic meetings at which Native Americans uh, helped to shape the actual course of the line. Mm -hmm. But then when the line was to be surveyed, uh, not only did European surveyors actually mark out the line, Native, a Native delegation went with them to make oh. sure that what they did on the ground matched up with what they said at the meetings. And sometimes they objected. Yeah. They said, no, the line has to go this way, not that way. And I think what the British knew was that to co truly conciliate the Indians as they, as in the language mm -hmm. that they used, they couldn't rely on paper maps or on written text mm -hmm. because Native Americans were suspicious of those instruments. That what they really needed is to bring Native Americans to the site mm -hmm. so that they could go back to their towns and report using um, oral culture that yeah. meant something in Indian societies, what they had seen and that and that they had verified mm -hmm. it with their own eyes. So some of the maps they produce and that I talk about in the book are they're like they're like colonial plats. They show the boundary and how notched pop poplars and elms oh, and birches marked the boundary. They often, um, on one side of the line, they would they would have the symbol of King George, mm -hmm. and on the other side of uh, a tree, they would put an Indian symbol. So you could actually visually see where the yeah. boundary was. The British hoped that this would resolve a lot of the frontier skirmishes that were taking place. There would be a warning to settlers and a notification to Native Americans about where it was appropriate to settle, and Native Americans thought that this might slow the pace of encroachment. Mm -hmm. So in many ways, it's a it's a really hopeful moment. Mm -hmm. At least there's some plan in place to try to resolve this bloody place. Um, the American Revolution, of course, breaks out, and all of the deals are for naught, right? right. The, the American government does not respect these deals, although they have their own uh, attempts to negotiate with Native Americans. But by and large, Native Americans side with the British, mm -hmm. who seem better allies than the Americans in terms of this issue of encroachment. So as the surveys are going out, you know, they're, they're making surveys, they're making manuscript maps. So what's the process from going from a manuscript map to an engraved published map? And, and what are we 
what do you what can you see in the one that you may not necessarily see in the other? Yeah, so the manuscript maps tend to be much larger scale maps that are at very high resolution, mm -hmm. um, and you can also see changes and and choices that were made by the map maker. Many of those manuscript maps are never published. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I thought my book could do is to kind of bring to the surface this huge trove of thousands of, of manuscript maps. 257 maps and map collections are the kind of core source material for the book that I have sure. uh, online as well. And uh, there are hundreds more I had to leave out, uh, but I thought, I wanted the readers to get a sense of how ambitious mm -hmm. and broad uh, and serious this project was. Uh, it wasn't just a few maps here and there, it was, it was uh, just a, a treasure trove mm -hmm. of, of maps that I'd never seen before and that hadn't really been talked about before. But uh, the final chapter of the book is called Atlases of Empire. It really takes the story through the American Revolution, mm -hmm. and it especially looks at the great London uh, atlases of American spaces mm -hmm. that are really considered masterpieces in the history of cartography. The Atlantic Neptune sure. uh, Atlas, which I know you're familiar with, mm -hmm. um, the North American Atlas, the American Atlas. So what would happen is um, there were certain publishers, Thomas Jeffries, a geographer to the king, was probably the most important, who had special access to this trove of manuscript mm -hmm. maps that was being sent from the field in America to the Board of Trade and other agencies. And he um, had, with the full permission and support of Great Britain, uh, the first chance to really take these maps and, and, and engrave them. So he did change them. Mm -hmm. He did... Um, he did add to them. But the British always wanted their maps publicized. They didn't want them kept secret the yeah. way the French and the Spanish did, really to keep the British out. They wanted everyone in the world to know that Britain had mapped these contested mm -hmm. spaces and therefore had the best claim to rule them and had the best knowledge about them. So there's this really amazing flowering as the American Revolution is being fought that kind of puts forward these really beautiful, yeah. uh, sophisticated images of America as if it's still an empire that's mm -hmm. going to be kind of part of Britain's future. But, of course, we know the revolution changed that. It's kind of ironic. Those come out right at, right at the time it's all falling apart. Yeah, and there are, in a few of these atlases, you do see sort of American Revolution battle maps, mm -hmm. but it's kind of, they're mixed messages. The atlases kind of proclaim the grandeur and vastness of the British Empire, but also yeah. start documenting how it was falling how apart. How it was falling apart. And uh, so, you know, you said you wanted to document how people are using these maps and bring a lot of these to the fore. So how, you know, how have people written about these maps or maps in general in the past that in ways that uh, you think your book departs from? Yeah, so I'm not trained as a map historian. I, I trained myself. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now I guess I am. Yeah. Uh, so uh, there are really two traditions in map history that I think dominate the field. And I've benefited from reading closely in both of them. One mm -hmm. is the traditional uh, uh, approach to map history, which is really kind of like uh, a combination of art history and mm -hmm. the history of science and technology. So a lot of very talented map historians uh, take an important map, a real breakthrough map, and try to kind of exhaust it as a source, mm -hmm. tell its story, talk about the techniques that were used to survey um, the material that's represented on the map, the, the map maker's aims and their influences and how the map had influence beyond uh, this map maker. And also to document the maps as objects, how they were published in different versions and how we can see subtle changes on the maps and why those mm -hmm. were made. That's a very valuable, traditional form of map history 
Um, the more recent uh, map historians really take their cues from literary studies. So Martin Bruckner's work oh, okay. in this regard is sure. a good example of that. Um, so um, uh, map historians have begun studying maps really at, a lot like texts. They have mm-hmm. an ideological message. Uh, they're never unbiased, even though they claim scientific objectivity. Mm-hmm. In fact, they're trying to promote the interests of usually their state uh, or their empire or some other agenda about, let's say, Protestantism versus Catholicism. Mm-hmm. So this has been a, a powerful adaptation of critical theory and literary studies to map history. I'm really a social science historian. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, so uh, it was important for me not, um, I mean, uh, I think I did some cultural history and yeah. interpretation in this book, but what I really wanted to do is what good social historians do, which is you take a broad sample of available data mm-hmm. and try to reveal something that's hidden about um, how people experience the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I treated map history as a kind of social history, social science history experiment. Yeah. I tried to look at as many of these maps as I could, both at the Library of Congress, but also at the National Archives of the United Kingdom, the British Library, the Huntington Library, the mm-hmm. Clements Library in Michigan, other places. And I tr- I couldn't you know, look at all of them, but I felt that I could have a representative sample of these maps mm-hmm. that would allow me to kind of analyze them in that way. So I would say I'm a little eccentric in my approach to uh, map <laughs> history, but um, I've been trying to kind of triangulate between map history, sure. imperial history, um, historical geography. Mm-hmm. And tell a story in a new way. And sometimes uh, blending these traditions can produce some new scholarship. Well, I want to come back to the social science aspect in a second. But I I do want to ask you very briefly about the time you spent aboard a ship learning to do Mm -hmm. uh, plane table surveying. I mean, uh, can you talk about that experience? Yeah, so I, um, most, for for the most part, this was a a book that was researched in really nice and elegant map libraries, (laughs) but the people I was studying were, you know, a poor ensign holding a a flag in in November in Nova Scotia. Some surveyor uh, had to have him stand there so he could do a sight line. And this is a real maritime enterprise. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I just felt I should at least see one of the places my surveyors were mapping on the deck of a ship, mm-hmm. if I could get the opportunity. And that opportunity came up uh, on the, the a NOAA ship, Thomas Jefferson, part of the U.S. Coast Survey. Um, they were doing a survey of the Florida Keys at the time I was writing and researching the surveying of the Florida Keys in mm-hmm. the 1760s and 70s. And I made a petition to get a research berth aboard the ship. Um, and most of the people who do re- research aboard NOAA ships are scientists who sure. they're taking water samples or they're doing uh, other work. Uh, so mine was a bit eccentric, but they accepted my petition. I had a 10-day berth aboard the Thomas Jefferson. I learned how to, they taught me all about their survey methods, mm-hmm. which are amazingly sophisticated using uh, different kinds of uh, sonar and radar um, and remote vessels now. Uh, and but it was it was important to to really see how difficult the project of surveying these mm-hmm. spaces were. This is not a matter of eyeballing the land from the deck of a ship. Yeah. Um, and the main uh, technique that surveyors used here was called plane table surveying. And so one of the things that the the crew and the the officers of the Thomas Jefferson uh, humored me uh, to do was to set up a, a kind of a recreation of these techniques. We did old fashioned lead line sounding. And we did a plane table survey of part of the Coast Guard's pier uh, in Key oh, West. Okay. Um, and the crew was involved, and they didn't quite understand what was going on. And someone <laughs> explained to them, we're going to do some old-school hydro, which yeah. is their word for hydrographic surveying. <laughs> so they, they took part. And um, what I learned from doing that was, um, after we had overlaid the results on uh, Google Earth, uh, mm-hmm. how accurate the method was, even, even though we were just doing it for the first time, that um, the way to gain confidence that you could survey these vast remote places was by 
not believing your eye, by disciplining the eye mm -hmm. and using this method that uses triangulation to create these uh, proportional surveys of the coastline. So um, I thought it was a really interesting experience and a useful one to appreciate the, the magnitude of what these map makers had created and the amount of hours uh, and, and uh, the time, effort, and money that went into undertaking this put the whole project in a new perspective. This wasn't just a kind of a frivolous add-on to what the British were doing. They really believed that this knowledge would be indispensable mm -hmm. for running a, a massive uh, Western empire. So we're really, what we're really seeing here is, um, although the British never had the kind of resources that the U.S. government has now, and you know, the yeah. ship I was on probably was a $2 billion ship with all the latest technology, even for the United States government that has 2.3 million square nautical miles of, of coastal area to survey, there's still 19th century data in mm -hmm. modern coastal charts because it's such a vast space. It's impossible to survey everything yeah. perfectly and keep everything up to date. So the British had a vision of how geographic information could be turned into real power, but they did not have the means um, mm -hmm. to really put it into effect. So in some ways, it's a, it's a story of these idealistic government officials who are embracing a very modern set of technologies, but kind of underestimate the magnitude of the task ahead of them. And I think that put the American Revolution and the goals that Britain had during that era into a new perspective yeah. from, from experiencing it directly. Well, speaking of not having the means, I mean, one of the one of the big challenges I, th I think you had with the book is that you obviously are working with maps and you want people to see them. And, and no publisher, though, is going to produce full-color uh, reproductions of 250 some odd maps in a a book, you know, irrespective of whether it's an academic book or a, a trade press book. So, how did you accomplish the your goal of getting people to see uh, the actual images themselves? Yeah, so uh, as I was learning to be a map historian, I really learned a lot from other scholars, but I was always frustrated by the fact that they would be telling me these brilliant things about how a river was shaped or a detail in mm -hmm. the text on, a, on the title cartouche of a map. But the little black, muddy black and white images they could publish in a journal or a book were really not, I couldn't even find the things yeah. they were talking about. So um, what I would do when I would read this stuff is I would look for copies online and, and off, libraries now are digitizing their old maps mm -hmm. as a way to preserve them and make them accessible to readers. And they're doing so at an enormous pace. And when I started this research around 2008 uh, or nine uh, into digital map history, um, libraries were just starting to publish hundreds of these maps. Now it's in, in the tens or hundreds yeah. of thousands. It would, be, it would have been impossible to do this kind of digital project uh, if libraries hadn't already digitized a huge parts mm -hmm. of their collections. But it allowed me to rethink the way this book could work. I didn't just have to hand pick a few key maps that would kind of anchor the book. I could kind of be a spendthrift and put as many maps up yeah. as possible. So I built a digital resource called Map Scholar with my um, uh, collaborator here at Virginia, Dr. Bill Furster. He's a visualization expert who um, has been writing about digital visualization and, and building digital tools for a long time at the University of Virginia. So Bill and I uh, just wanted to create a platform where we could um, geo-reference maps so we could see how they appear on a global digital base map mm -hmm. and make the text of my captions interactive so you could click on links 
and the map would do something. It would zoom into a point, or I could use uh, layers to highlight different things on the maps. Um, to me, that was a, a much better way of getting my readers to have an experience with this map archive mm -hmm. I had curated and brought together, um, that they could see it with their own eyes, because there's just so much you can do to write about a visual thing. Right. It's much better to have the text and the images work together. So with support from the um, National Endowment for the Humanities and uh, the American Council for Learned Societies, which gave us grant support for this project, we um, we spent several years building this platform, and, and Jim, uh, you were one of our <laughs> lead research assistants, so you made great contributions to this project. Thank you. But what we created was a real a purpose-built resource for map history that um, I, I still do online tutorials, mm -hmm. uh, people are still using it, and I use it uh, as a teaching tool as well. But it was really just designed to be a, an easy online tool so that um, you could put your maps online and make them work with the scholarship mm -hmm. you produce. And so I was, it took me in a, in a couple new directions that I hadn't anticipated before I started this project. And so have you seen people using it in ways that you didn't anticipate? Um, occasionally. So a lot of local historical societies have found out about Map Scholar mm -hmm. and have come to me saying, you know, we have this great collection and have some maps involved. We really want to make it available to our to our users. And uh, so uh, I didn't anticipate that local history and local historical oh, societies yeah. would be a would be interested in this. I think what's also nice about it is uh, it's relatively easy to use. There's no software to download. Mm -hmm. So uh, the main resource for this kind of work is usually ArcGIS, which is an expensive uh, program that requires some training to yeah. use. Yeah. It's pretty sophisticated. And if you're at a university, your university is going to give you access to it. But a lot of people don't have that access, especially if they're um, if they're trying to preserve um, artifacts and objects from, mm -hmm. from local libraries or historical societies. So we provided a resource that can fill that gap, that can provide really dynamic, interactive online visualizations for free. Um, and once you start learning how to use it, it's pretty intuitive, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. Well, what, what do you think the next frontier are for map history and uh, scholarship? Well, uh, as as happy as I am with the way Map Scholar turned out, and you know your uh, your listeners can can look at uh, go to mapscholar.org/empire mm -hmm. where all the maps for the book are. You don't have to buy the book, and all of them are very well captioned. I think you should buy yeah, the book. Yeah, you buy the book, it's but um, <laughs> but you can get a lot out just looking at the, yeah. the maps online as well. Uh, we should say you were a finalist for the George Washington Book Prize. I was, yeah. and uh, I was not the winner, but I was very honored to be to be among that company. It was uh, it was uh, it was an honor to uh, to be recognized in that way, um, and it was. It was good to know that a group of scholars behind it um, thought this book had something innovative sure. to offer, which was yeah. really the goal all along. So th as much as I'm happy with the way it turned out and I, as much as I like the book, um, I, I think really I was doing the best I could for the technology that we mm -hmm. had at the moment. I think we all know that history scholarship is going to be more digital in the future. Sure. And it will integrate text and images in a way that's a little more seamless. Mm -hmm. Most of my readers are reading a text version of this book and then looking at their computer screen to, to see the maps. And that's okay, yeah. but I am experimenting um, with new ways of trying to build the text and images together in a way that's a little more oh, less really? less of a gap. So one of the things I, I'm, I'm talking to University of Virginia Press about right now is um, thinking about maybe a documents reader related to, mm -hmm. to the proclamation of 1763. They could take some of these maps, but but layer them with text and original documents mm -hmm. in a way that's that can give students an experience of this kind of wealth of, mm -hmm. of information. Um, so I think the next frontier is really a seamless integration mm -hmm. of text and images. I'm training graduate students here at the University of Virginia in digital humanities in part because I think 10 years from now, 
that's going to be the expectation. Yeah. Not just a textbook with a few images on the side as illustrations, but um, digital visualizations that are dynamic and interactive mm-hmm. and built and part of the research pro- project. Um, history is a discipline that um, you know our, our majors are declining. Um, our enrollments are a little weaker than they used to be. Mm-hmm. Used to, we used to be a main uh, major for most colleges and universities. I think if we want to make a claim on people's attention as a, a relevant discipline, we have to use this technology mm-hmm. to make a case that learning history is is not just some kind of a luxury uh, yeah. that's interesting, but actually plugs you into some currents of, of how technology is moving in the future. Well, and how are you using technology and, and maps in the classroom to educate your undergraduate students? Right, so I teach digital history now. Yeah. So I teach students how to use Map Scholar and especially how to use ArcGIS Online, which mm-hmm. is the uh, the main free online resource that, that ArcGIS produces. Uh, so that's been really gratifying. I do that at the undergraduate and graduate level. Uh, I also integrate it into my lectures. So I teach a course called Maps in World History. And um, the goal of the course is to build a syllabus around about 100 maps mm-hmm. that we study all semester. We go to the Special Collections Library and look at many of them. Oh, nice. But I create a digital archive of these maps so students can can see the maps for studying and see them in order and study from mm-hmm. them. And I've also started using this sort of uh, tool in my colonial history courses as well. I just think... Um, um, one of the the hard things about studying colonial history is that most of my students know where Virginia is or can find right. New York, but they don't always know where Barbados is mm-hmm. or the island of St. Christopher or Honduras. And these are really important places uh, for the way historians look at early American history, not just the 13 colonies on the mainland, but sure. a huge uh, network of spaces uh, that are British, French, Dutch, and Spanish, native. Um, and so uh, I give them geography quizzes and I give them dynamic interactive maps so that they can see the geography over and over again to mm-hmm. become familiar with it. One of the keys to this kind of technology, I mean, we all, everyone who went to school in the United States kind of has a map of the modern U.S. in their brains sure. as the default. Mm-hmm. And I kind of have to break that down for them if they're going to really understand how space worked in yeah. the early period. And so using these digital tools and, and kind of showing them these places over and over again is a way to do that. So uh, what is your favorite map these days? I mean, you looked at, I don't know, probably thousands at this point. What um, what sticks out in your mind is, is something that is both uh, historically pleasing and visually pleasing. That's a good question. I think um, there's a Herman Mull map from 1715 called Map of the Dominions of the King of Great Britain. Oh. Um, it's a map that's famous because it has a cartouche of uh, beavers working on chopping down trees in front of Niagara Falls. Mm-hmm. And it's a image that many historians, myself included, have seen as a kind of metaphor for the colonization itself, Mm -hmm. these busy beavers remaking the natural world into something productive. It's also a beautiful and elegantly formed map. Map historians are often frustrated with it because it it takes such liberties with the actual geography. (laughs) But it's a classic map that really presents a view, one of the first views of an integrated British empire that's more than the sum of its parts. And it's a map I love teaching. It's a map I come back to time and time again. The other map that I think I'm spending the most time with these days and trying to figure out its meanings is a map that's called the Catawba Deerskin Map. Uh, I was, I was going to ask you yeah, about that one as well. This is really at the heart of my new research, which tries to study um, the early American, Native American frontier uh, in South Carolina and the Southeast. Uh, South Carolina became an extraordinarily aggressive colonial power, especially by pushing the Indian trade all the way to the Mississippi River. Mm-hmm. There were a number of notable wars against the Spanish with the Yamasee and, and, and other Indians as uh, English allies, and then the Yamasee War against South Carolina rule. 
1715. After the Amnesty War was over and all these Indians rose up against South Carolina, the Catawba uh, Nation produced uh, a really interesting map uh, painted on a deerskin. And this is a map that looks nothing like European maps. It's a bunch of circles and double lines. Mm -hmm. Each of those circles represents a Catawba community, and the Catawba Indian homeland is really on the border between um, South Carolina and North Carolina in the interior. Um, this group of Indians had attacked uh, the English in Carolina during the Yamasee War. After the war was over, they wanted to repair relations. So what they presented to South Carolina's governor in the 1720s was this sort of network map of nodes and spokes that pictured a world in which Native Americans ruled the interior and the English in Virginia and Carolina had an important part of that network on the coasts. Mm -hmm. And the more I learn about this map, the more I think it can kind of open up a world of what was going on in this really tumultuous century as Native Americans saw the onslaught of Europeans coming at them and tried to react to it. So I want to use spatial history and the history of cartography to use these maps to kind of tell a new story about um, the history of the continental interior in the 18th century. So do you, do you see the Catawbas trying to create their own kind of boundary line that, that the British then tried to create in the 1760s? What's interesting about this map is that it doesn't emphasize boundaries at all. No. Um, it emphasizes connections across boundaries. Uh, and I think this is very, for those who study Native American history, this isn't surprising mm -hmm. because um, Native views of space, there are sovereignty claims they have, but when they choose to map it in their idiom, they do so with an idea of how to shore up relations between people who are in some kind of alliance. So that was really the purpose of this map. What I think hasn't been recognized is that long before the British kind of understood the South the way we do today as a kind of a massive region that was integrated and belonged together, this, this and other a few other maps are really an Indian version of the South, a, mm. a proposal about the way this South could look like mm -hmm. and how it could be structured. Really uh, an attempt to imagine a different kind of future, one that would be marked by alliance and trade rather than by constant encroachment yeah. and warfare. So it's, it's another one. Maybe I'm attracted to these hopeless moments that have <laughs> hope in them uh, because we all know what happened to right. this history. So to really understand how history worked, we need to put that knowledge aside mm -hmm. and, and think about how colonists and officials and Native Americans were trying to work out some kind of other outcomes that were still possible at that moment. Do you have a sense yet of how South Carolina colonists or British imperial officials were reacting to this map? Especially in the aftermath of the, of the Yamasee War, when Carolina officials were just trying to keep a foothold in this part of the continent mm -hmm. uh, to keep their colony from collapsing. This was, I think, an overture they appreciated. They needed Indian allies, and they were willing to regard them as such. And um, colonists, on the other hand, always had their own agenda, and that agenda typically involved having a steady supply of new land that they could move into, mm -hmm. which not only did they want individually for their own benefit, but was really part of the whole purpose of colonization. It was a, it was a good thing to do. Mm -hmm. So at the very early part of this history, when the war was over, and these Indian nations and the British government were coming together, those colonists were still pretty far away from Catawba country. But as James Merrill has written about, the Catawbas made their uh, bid to uh, survive based on their long-standing alliance with both the British and with the Americans who followed. Mm -hmm. So some Indians rose up in protest, some Indians conducted wars of attempted extermination against the English. The Catawbas tried another path, and. It was a mixed. It was a mixed bag, but they survived today. The Catawba Nation is still uh, a living community. So I wanted to f figure out a little bit about how they managed that um, and the way their sense of the space in which 
they lived changed. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really fascinating. Let's uh, shift gears just briefly. Let's go back to the American Revolution. As um, hopefully some of our listeners will know by this point, the li- uh, Washington Library has acquired a major map collection from uh, Mr. Richard Brown, uh, some 300-plus uh, individual maps and atlases and books that showcase visually the American Revolution from the British, the French, the American, uh, and other European perspectives. And Max, I was kind of hoping I could get your your sense of uh, the value of a collection like this for our understanding of the American Revolution, but but also the value of a... Of of creating a curated collection like this, I mean, it's it's unusual. I think um, that you would find a a set of maps that are dedicated specifically, uh, you know, uh, dated between say, roughly 1755 and, and 1796, which charts the uh, beginning of the Seven Years' War through the emergence of the New Republic. And so, you know, what what do you think are some things that we can learn by looking at a, a heavily curated collection like this? I, I think for me, as someone who came to map study relatively uh, late in my career, what 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 I love about working with maps is that they force you to take geography seriously. Mm-hmm. It's easy sometimes, depending on how you're approaching history, to just think of geography in kind of neutral terms as an empty stage on which other important things happen. But those who pay attention to geography, as historical geographers and other historians have done for years, it, it, it shapes everything that happens within uh, its frame. It dictates the way this world works. And sometimes it's easy for us to forget, you know, we enjoy the privilege of frictionless travel across space. And, you know, driving across a bridge that crosses a great river is a non-event in our right. commutes, but would have been incredibly present to people who lived in this world who had to figure out how to uh, plant farms and ship goods and mm-hmm. escape um, yeah. And that geography, by, by learning about how this geography worked, we learned something basic, essential, and palpable about the early American experience that we can't easily see unless we dig a little bit because mm-hmm. our lives are so different. So I think a map collection is one way into that kind of knowledge. It's also, you know, many of, of, of the researchers who come to George Washington's Mount Vernon um, are going to be able to spend a lot of time working with the text collections. But maybe the casual visitor isn't going to have access to those. Mm-hmm. Uh, but maps can be put on display, and um, can, they can be explained to visitors in terms of what to be looking for and how they reveal something about the past. So I think for um, for an institution like yours, having a good map collection is a way of welcoming in a whole bunch of different users into the kind of uh, sources that mean most to mm-hmm. historians. I think as a teaching resource, uh, it's really remarkable. And, um, you know, students these days are visual in the way they interact with information. So maps are, are a really important resource to, to draw them in and to give them materials to work with that I think uh, are keyed to that kind of skill and interest. So I couldn't be happier for you that you have a great map collection. <laughs> I can't wait to come up and, uh, and take a look at it. Well, I was going to say, yeah, the, the next task is here to pack up everything and just go, you know, take a look and, and see what we've got. Well, uh, Dr. Edelson, thank you very much. This has been a lot of fun for me. And um, uh, for folks out there who would like to see some of the maps that we've recently acquired, we'll post a link uh, to our digital collections on our our show page here for this podcast. And uh, Max, we look forward to seeing what you uh, come up with spatially and visually in the future. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky, Our theme music was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hillebrand. 
If you'd like to support this podcast as well as new research into George Washington and his world, please consider becoming a Mount Vernon member. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.